Good morning, everyone. So I had the opportunity to go on my first mission trip when I was in the seventh grade. We loaded up a bus and we drove 24 hours to Denver, Colorado. Now, I was new to the youth group and I was new to the church and really I was new to the whole kind of God thing in general. And I really only went on that trip because I had friends going and because I thought that it was going to be a fun experience. And on that last night, we had a closing worship service in an old middle school gym. And I remember feeling something that night that I had never felt before. I felt the presence of God in a very real way. I remember looking up into the rafters of that gym, expecting to be able to see God sitting up there somewhere. That's how real God felt in that moment. Now, fast forward to my senior year of high school. I went to La Carpio, Costa Rica, which is a trip that many people in this church have been on. And while I was there, I fell in love with this kid named Kenny. We were, we were both cuties back then. <laughs> but Kenny was funny. He cared about his brother in a very real way, and he was just kind to his core. <clears throat> On the last night of that trip, I remember sitting in a room and just sobbing because I could not understand why I got to go home but Kenny had to stay in those slums. I didn't understand why I got to go back to a life that I didn't pick, a life that consisted of me having a roof over my head and food to eat, a life consisted of me getting ready to leave for college and I wasn't even gonna have to pay for it, a life that was full of every necessity and every luxury anybody could want. And yet Kenny was going to have to stay there in a life that he didn't pick, where statistically he was going to join a gang by the age of 12 to provide protection for his family, where statistically he was going to have a kid before the age of 16, and where odds were stacked against him of ever being able to break that cycle of poverty that he was stuck in. And I could not wrap my mind around that. I couldn't understand why our lives were so different when the only real difference between us was that I was born white in Kentucky and he was born brown in Nicaragua. And I remember having my first experience of doubt in that moment, where the God that I had believed in since that moment in Colorado seemed either bad at his job or not present with the people at all. And for the first time, I began to experience a spiritual crisis. The God that I thought that I knew everything about seemed less and less proactive and less and less real. For the first time, my confidence in God was shaken. And the reality of God to me was not that firm. Now, when we did this spiritual crisis survey a few weeks back, there were selected typed answers that you all could pick from, or there was an option that you all could submit your own spiritual crisis. And the idea of doubt was not one of the pre-written topics, but it was by far the most typed topic. Most of the comments read something like, 
I don't know what to do when I doubt God. Or they said, I doubt the Bible and I doubt Jesus and I doubt the existence of God. Or they said something like, I feel bad about the amount of doubt I have towards this whole Christian thing. And the truth is, people are not alone in those feelings. We all deal with doubt in some capacity. Youth regularly ask me things like, why doesn't God stop a natural disaster? Or how is God okay with watching children starve? I remember on my first day of theology class in seminary, our professor ended the class with saying, let's think about the Holocaust. He said, either your God isn't all good and let that happen, or your God isn't all powerful and did nothing about it. And he said, either answer is going to ruin your day. It did. When we are confronted with things that don't make sense, we naturally begin to doubt. So today, that's the spiritual crisis that we're going to be exploring, that spiritual crisis of doubt. Our scripture today comes from a famous text in Matthew called the Great Commission. Fun fact, if you type the Great Commission into your phone, it autocorrects to the Great Collision. It's not the same thing. But it's found in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 19, and it reads like this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, some of them worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So let's set the stage for this moment. Jesus does all of these crazy things his whole life, but he reminds them at every turn, one day I'm going to do something greater. One day I'm going to beat death. And then Good Friday comes, and then Easter Sunday comes, and ta-da, Jesus is back. And it says he gathered his disciples on a mountain, which seems kind of perfect, because if you ever come back from the dead, you have to gather your people on a mountain, or like in the ocean. You can't say like, meet me at Steve's house. Like, that just kind of kills the whole vibe that you're going for. But he meets them on a mountain. And it says in verse 17, some of them worshipped him and some of them doubted. Ah, that had to be kind of awkward. You're Jesus and you just did the world's biggest magic trick. Something no one had ever seen before. You beat death. The climax of your story had come and it had passed. And you're standing there on a mountain for one last aha moment with everybody. And some of them worshipped, and some of them doubted. Some of them were like, wow, that's crazy. And some of them were like, eh, not, not sure about that. And one thing I want to point out about this scripture is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say some of them worshipped and some of them doubted, and Jesus said, ye with little faith. It doesn't say some of them worshipped and some of them doubted. And Jesus said, if you only prayed more, those doubts would go away. It doesn't say some of them worshipped and some of them doubted. And those who doubt need to get behind me, Satan. 
Now, he saved that one for his best friend. But it says some of them worshiped, some of them doubted. And then Jesus said, now go and make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I love this because it's very matter of fact. Jesus doesn't get worked up. He doesn't really even act like anything's wrong. There's no shock. There's no surprise. He just passes over it. And my guess is on that mountain, the disciples changed roles throughout their lives. I bet at points in their lives, those disciples were the worshipers. And I bet at points in their lives, those disciples were the doubters. And I love this scripture because isn't that exactly who we are? Every week we meet in this place and some of us worship the risen Jesus and some of us doubt. And to make things even trickier, very rarely are we the worshiper or the doubter, but usually we're somewhere in the middle of both of those. And yet Jesus still follows it up with go and do the stuff I've asked you to do. Your doubt doesn't get solved by sitting in a pew and your worship doesn't get stronger by standing on a mountain. Now you have to go do. Did you know that after Mother Teresa died, they found her diary and her life was plagued with doubt, but she kept on serving anyways. And here's the point. The church is a lot like that mountainside. It's a place of believers and a place of doubters, and it is one beautiful mess. And I wanted to point that out because I think it's so important that the same Jesus who is God is also the same Jesus who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a moment where I believe that Jesus holds all of humanity as one. He has people on his left and people on his right. He has people that are praising and people that are doubting. And he is standing in the middle holding them together as one. Jesus holds those moments of worship, that moment of seventh grade quarry looking for God in the rafters. But Jesus also holds the moments of doubt the moments of not believing or not understanding, the moments of thinking that something is downright wrong. Jesus takes all of those human experiences, and he doesn't belittle it, he doesn't shame it, but instead he says, that's fine, but now go and make disciples. Because if there's one thing that we know about the disciples, it's that they are full of both moments of worship and moments of doubt. But here's the problem. Here's where the spiritual crisis part comes in. Too many of us have been told for too long by well-intentioned people that there is no room for that. We've been told in those moments of doubt that they will pass. We're told that if we have doubts, we should feel bad or we're defective in some way. But telling people not to doubt is like telling people not to to breathe. And I've seen people and I've been in too many churches where everyone is just holding their breath. 
And if they would just let it out, they would discover that there is beauty and new discoveries on the other side. Think about how different the world would be if we couldn't doubt. Think about how different the church would be if we couldn't doubt. We would still think the world is flat. We would still think the universe revolved around us. There is no intimacy like the wrestling with God. Faith is supposed to be a live and active thing. And the truth is, those things that you doubt in faith and in church, you need to doubt them because they're not true. God conveniently telling people in the Old Testament to go and wipe out an entire race of people that that guy already thought was his enemy, that needs to be doubted. Women can't speak in church. That needs to be doubted. Slaves should simply accept their position and respect their owner. It's in the Bible and it needs to be doubted. If we don't doubt, we never grow. And if people in the past hadn't doubted, we would be stuck in that same toxic and harmful thought process that never pointed us to God to begin with. Rob Bell says that faith and doubt aren't opposites. He says that doubt is often a sign that your faith has a pulse, that it is alive and well, and it is exploring and searching. No, faith and doubt are not opposites. They are, as it turns out, excellent dance partners. In life, we oftentimes encounter ideas that don't seem to gel with our faith. Maybe it's an idea about science, or maybe it's something you learned through another religion or through other Christian traditions. And those ideas that make us question things that we always felt comfortable believing in, at times that then makes our gut instinct to think, well, we must be bad Christians. But instead, I believe we're supposed to hold those moments of doubt and hold our faith in tension with each other. And it encourages us to grow in that faith that we care so deeply about. The question of doubt, or is doubt okay, seems to come out of the thought that sometimes when I am in the middle of the negative parts of life, when I'm in the middle of the struggle, I don't have positive feelings about God. And I worry about how that lack of faith looks to others. We seem to be tied to this idea that faith is the same thing as unwavering belief. And that wondering about the reality of God is strictly off limits. Instead, one of the key ideas for today is that there is no doubt, there is no question and no idea that you have ever struggled with that other people have not struggled with also. In fact, there aren't many doubts or questions that aren't explicitly dealt with in the Bible. The Hebrew tradition has a great thing that the Christian tradition has lost, and it's this idea of being able to openly and freely question God and argue with God. There's a pastor in Colorado that says that every time we have a praise band sing, we should also have a complain band sing right after them. <laughs> because that seems to be more on pace with the scripture. Maybe Dave can take care of that before he retires. Maybe not. <laughs> so let's have a real conversation for a second before I wrap up. 
me, Corey Miller, a minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a seminary-trained, masters-educated minister, I have doubts. And personally, that's hard for me to reconcile with from time to time. I'll have a friend that'll occasionally want to start an argument after one too many, and they'll say something like, Corey, you're a preacher or something, right? Because nobody ever has any idea what it is I do. <laughs> and I say, yeah, something, something like that. And they'll go, well, here's a piece of your faith that I think's garbage. Try to defend that. And I'll be like, yeah, I think that's garbage too. You should let me know when you figure that out. And conversation usually ends after that. Because when I first became a minister, I thought that it was my job to have all of the answers. But I've learned that that's not my job at all. Instead, my job is to be okay with the questions and to help people journey through those questions. Because when God was asked for an answer, he sent a person. I've talked at length with you all about my friend who passed away a couple of summers ago. For me, that was not my first experience with doubt, but it was, without a doubt, the biggest doubt crisis I've ever had. And to be honest, there are still things about that that give me anxiety about my belief in God. And here's the thing. I'm in good company. And if you're here and you have doubts and anxieties too, you're in good company as well. Because I'm in the company of Abraham who laughed at God when God promised him something. I'm in the company of Job who said, curse this ground. I'm in the company of Thomas who said, I won't believe you until I get to touch the holes in your hand. I'm in the company of the author of Ecclesiastes who said, vanity, vanity, all of this is worthless. And I'm in the company of Jesus who on the cross cried out, God, why have you done this to me? But those questions and those feelings, they've led to a much more authentic relationship with God. Those doubts have led me to arguing with God. So if you are here today and you are stuck in the middle of somewhere that praise and that doubt, that's okay. You're in good company too. Because we are all worshipers and we are all doubters. I know I've talked a lot, and there are a few points that I want you all to walk away with today. First, if you have doubts about God, about the Bible, about religion, whatever, that is not a bad thing. It's okay. Our doubts cause us to grow and to learn. It keeps our faith alive. Frederick Buechner said, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Second, you are not alone in your doubts. There is a wide-held tradition of questioning, of doubting, and of complaining to God. Third, this church is a place that your questions and your doubts are welcome. You do not need to hide those things here. We embrace the uncomfortable. We value real conversations, and we acknowledge that this journey we are all on with faith is full of both worship and doubt. And finally, Jesus is big enough to hold all of those things as one. In Matthew, it said that some of them worshiped and some of them doubted, and Jesus held all of that together. 
And then he said, go and make disciples. I hope that that call is still true today because we all have work to do. He says, go and make disciples and think of what would happen if we would all lead with our authentic selves. If instead of just leading with praise, if we would both lead with praise and with doubt, think of how many more disciples we might make. That first moment of doubt for me and the slums of Costa Rica led me to where I am today. It led me to a life of ministry. It changed my heart and it made me care about people and people's situations in a much more real way. That first moment of doubt I had made me a better person. We have to trust that God is bigger than our doubts and bigger than our questions. That doubt is not something we need to avoid, but instead it is something that we need to embrace. Our end goal should not be to arrive at some sort of certainty. It's not about getting the correct answer, but it's about how we approach the world. We should not be trying to reach a place where we don't doubt, but instead we should be trying to reach a place where we use our doubt to help us grow in a more authentic, more real connection with God. Will you all stand and pray with me? Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for everyone that is in this room this morning. God, we acknowledge that in our journey we have moments of praise and we have moments of doubt. And God, we ask that you be with us in both of those things and that you show us your presence at all times. It's in your name we pray. Amen.